0: We're going to go through verse, chapter 2, verse 4. And so, if you're new to Redeemer, we've been going through the book of Philippians for a few weeks now. And what we've seen so far is that this letter was written uh, by the Apostle Paul while he's in prison. And he's writing it to a church that he planted in the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was a colony of Rome that was... Really home to a lot of Roman veterans. That it was a very patriotic city, is very loyal to Caesar. And that Paul planted this church roughly 10 to 12 years before writing this letter. And as we found out in chapter 1, he cared greatly for this church. And this church cared a lot for him. That when the Philippians heard that he was in prison, they sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to bring a gift and to bring food to help him get through prison. And so, as we saw last week, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to not despair over his imprisonment, but that he was actually serving God's purpose. That he was sharing the gospel with the guards and the prisoners, and that the other preachers were seeing him in prison and were emboldened to preach the gospel as well. He was even going so far as to rejoice over people who were preaching the gospel in spite of him, because he said, regardless, the mission is still being carried out. And that Jeremy told us last week, the mission for us today is the same as it was then. That we are to share the good news and proclaim Jesus as Lord to the world. To to love him and to make much of him. And that whether our life is going great, or if it's going poorly like Paul's, the mission doesn't change. And that's a good reminder for us right now. Because whether we're going through job loss... Or strained or broken relationships, or just depression and anxiety from what's going on in the world. Jesus and the gospel are the same in good times and bad, and that he is greater than anything we face on this earth. And so, while last week we saw Paul write about his circumstances in prison and how he could still find joy in Christ, this week he's gonna show us how living a gospel worthy life is ultimately rooted. Jesus. So let's take a look at the passage. This is Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So in verse 27, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to live in a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. So what does he mean by that? In the original Greek, the phrase, let your manner of life, that he uses here, is commonly used to describe how a citizen should act in their kingdom or nation. And so what he's doing is playing on this idea of patriotism that was so strong in Philippi, because being a Roman citizen was a big deal to any Philippian. Because as a citizen of Rome, you've got certain benefits and you could do certain things that foreigners could not And so Paul knew that these Philippians were really proud of their citizenship. And what he's doing is he's reminding the readers that they actually have a dual citizenship. Not only a Roman one, but one that is in heaven and is a far greater value and benefit to them. That they are citizens in the kingdom of God, and ultimately their leader is Jesus, not Caesar. So his encouragement for them is to let their lives show such a way that they believe that fact. And he wants their lives to reflect the gospel to others, and he wants it to show in a couple of different ways. So in the rest of verse 27, Paul says, I want to see you standing firm and striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this is the first way that their conduct shows that they are living a gospel-worthy life, that they are standing firm as a church, and that they are laser-focused on spreading the good news. And so the term Paul uses here for standing firm is actually a military term, and it conveys this idea of holding the line. If you've ever seen a movie that's set during Roman times in a battle, you've probably seen when they do the shield wall. And so the front row of shoulders, they will put the first shields down, protects their body and their feet, and then there's a back row of soldiers that will put it over their heads. And so when enemies shoot their arrows, they're protected, and it's a fantastic defense against their enemies. And so remember, Philippi is largely a group of ex-Roman soldiers, so they would have understood and appreciated this fact of standing firm. Because in a shield wall, if there's any weakness, any lack of uniformity, then the enemy can break in and start wreaking havoc on the other soldiers. And so the soldiers that made up this shield wall would have no other focus than to stand firm To maintain the line and slowly gain ground. Which, if you think about it, is really a good description of what we're called to do as Christians. That our mission is to go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching people to follow Jesus. And that we as the church are on the front lines, like soldiers. And our aim is to gain ground in this world for the kingdom of God. I think another thing to point out here is that being a part of a church is a vital aspect to being a follower of christ that we are not supposed to be alone in our walk with jesus our faith is both private and it's public because one of the main functions of the church is that we are to carry out the one another's that we see in the new testament that we are to pray for one another love one another carry one another's burdens confess our sins to one another be at peace with one another and this is not only mandated by scripture but it's really practical for us as believers, because we know that you cannot be strong all the time, that there will be times where you will stumble and fall, where you will be weak. And if you're just out there lone wolfing it, there will be no one there to support you, to draw you off the front line so that you can heal and recover, that you'll just simply get overwhelmed by the enemy. And so the church helps each other stand firm in the faith, even in the face of opposition, And that leads us to the second aspect of a gospel-worthy life. So in verse 28, Paul tells the Philippians to not be frightened by anything that their opponents throw at them. Okay, so part of the drawback of living in a highly patriotic community in these times was that as a citizen of Rome, you are required to bend the knee to Caesar and declare him as God. And since Christians weren't really down with that, there was a lot of strife and anger from Rome and its people. And so, we can see that their opponents were very likely Romans and Jews who were bringing charges against these Philippians of treason. And the Jews probably didn't care so much about the empire, but they were opposed to Jesus, so they they just used the same charges to accomplish their goal. And usually, these charges, if found guilty, led to death. And it's ultimately what will lead to Paul's death later on down the road. So, As you can understand, there's a great deal of fear going around this church because people are trying to get them imprisoned, tortured, or even executed because of their faith in Jesus. And yet, Paul tells them to not be scared for this reason, because their dedication in the midst of persecution is a sign of their salvation and of their opponent's destruction. And he takes it a step further by saying that not only your belief in Jesus but your suffering for Jesus has been granted to you by God. Jesus tells his disciples the same thing in the book of John, chapter 15, 18 through 20. Look at that real quick. Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so what Paul and Jesus is getting here is that we as believers can take encouragement from the fact that when we suffer for Jesus, that it is a sign that we are saved by him. And he is also reminding them that, hey, we knew that suffering was coming. And so know that this is a part of God's plan and don't let it take you by surprise. And so when the church is unafraid in the face of persecution, we are conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel because we are showing the world that we truly believe what we're preaching. And while the desired goal is for the church to live out a gospel worthy life, we're going to see in the next few verses That there is something that can jeopardize that goal if we're not careful. So let's look at uh, verses 1 and 2 and chapter 2 again. Again, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So the so at the start of chapter 2 Could also be read as a therefore And we all know what to do with a therefore It points us back to what was being said And it connects it to these verses So to summarize what we went over in 27 through 30 Paul tells the the Philippians to live lives That are worthy of the gospel To do that they share and live out the message of Jesus Standing firm, unwavering against opposition But we notice here That for the Philippians, something is hindering them from doing that. And we can see that by what he says in verse 2, where he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. And the joy that he's referring to is at the start of the letter, where he says he's praying to God for them. And what he says to them is, Look, when I think about all that God's done for you, when I think about the partnership that you've had with me for the gospel, it brings me joy. However, What would make my joy complete is if I hear that you are being united. And so he is calling them to unity because he's hearing reports, probably from Epaphroditus, that they were fighting with each other. Now, what they were fighting about isn't really clear, and it doesn't really matter, because. but we do know that there was trouble in the church because if you peek ahead of the letter, Paul specifically calls out two women for fighting in the church. And so... We see in verse 1, Paul is appealing to their salvation to encourage them to unity. In the whole of verse 1, he's basically saying, look, if Christ has done anything in your life, if there's a smidgen of comfort or encouragement or work done by the Holy Spirit in your life, then be of full accord in one mind with each other. Now, what is not being said here is that Christians are to agree on absolutely everything. Rather, we should all want the same thing above anything else, and that is to fulfill the Great Commission. Not to promote our agenda, but Christ. And so there's room to disagree on a whole lot of things as Christians. But at the end of the day, if those disagreements cause us to fight and break relationship with each other, it is going to hurt our witness to the world. It is extremely hypocritical of the church to share the gospel, which is a message of hope and reconciliation when we are not reconciled with each other. Jesus made peace for us with the Father, and we are to be peacemakers as well. Paul talks about this idea in his letter to the Romans in chapter 12, verses 18 through 16. I'm sorry, 16 through 18. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So some of you might be asking, so what can we argue about? Or can't we? Where's the line at? I think Jeremy has put it best... When he says that when it comes to our faith There's primary issues and There's secondary and there's tertiary issues Primary issues are the ones like The, the ideas that Things like Jesus is the son of God That we are born sinful in need of rescuing That Jesus died for our sins That the Bible is the inerrant word of God That as Christians we are called to make disciples That God is all present All powerful and all knowing Things like that And so secondary issues, tertiary issues, would be things like baptism. Do we sprinkle or do we dunk? You know, I've never seen a minister do the salt bay, but you get the idea. (laughs) The Lord's Supper. Do you drink wine or grape juice? Do you drink it all? Things like different approaches to sharing the gospel, preferences in worship and spiritual gifts. And I'm sure Jay buck probably has an exhaustive list somewhere that if you need the list of primary issues, then he's got it. So you can email him and he'll get it over to you. But the idea really is that primary issues are issues that would fundamentally change the gospel if we changed them. All right? They are what makes up the gospel. If we disagree on those, it alters the message. And so when we hear Paul saying, be of one mind, he is saying, focus on the primary issues. Don't get into fights about the secondary things that we can disagree on any manner of things, as long as it's not a primary issue. And as long as it isn't breaking relationship and threatening unity of the church. And so Paul is trying to convey here that unity with the church is a vital part of living a gospel worthy life. Or if you put it in the negative sense, Division in the church will make its members ineffective in their mission to share the gospel and show Jesus to their community. Because division in a church will ultimately allow Satan to lay waste to it. Remember we were talking about the shield wall? That if there's any weaknesses in the wall, the whole defense will start to crumble. And I feel like the same thing applies to the church. That if there's any dissension, any infighting going on in the church, that Satan exploits those weaknesses... And pretty soon, you'll see a church split and relationships destroyed. And when that happens, our overall message of hope in the gospel is marred in the community. Unfortunately, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably seen your fair share of fights and maybe even church splits. I grew up in a small Baptist church in Georgia. And I remember I was a kid, maybe eight or so. We were going to renovate the sanctuary. And so being a small Baptist church, we had conference, which is basically all the members get together and vote on these issues. And the anger that was going on in those conferences over things like the color of carpet was astounding. That people were so mad they were threatening to leave the church because the carpet was purple. And so you might shake your head at that and say, man, that sounds ridiculous. Because it is. But division in the church affects all of us and that we as redeemer are not immune to that even the philippians weren't immune to it and they were a healthy church so let that be an encouragement and a warning for us that the church of philippi was one of the strongest churches paul planted of his churches they were the mvc all right yet they still struggled with unity MVC's most valuable church in case you're thinking about that. So, that tells us no church is free from the struggle. But on the other hand that there is grace for us when division does occur. And so what does this mean for us today as Redeemer Pampa? Cuz right now we are living in an either or culture. And this applies to most aspects of our life. You're either a Republican or you're a Democrat. You're either a, ma- a feminist or a mansplainer. You're either a capitalist or you're a socialist. You're either urban or you're rural. You're either a UGA fan or you're just not, not with it. So <laughs> you're either one that thinks COVID is real and scary or you're one that thinks it's just like the flu and it's a hoax. You're either a Black Lives Matter supporter or you're a racist. And as you can see on the news and media, that divide is growing larger and more hostile by the day. And so what's more concerning is that if you try and take a middle stance, then you're blasted by both sides. And so we as Christians, we have to be willing to admit that our own views are affected by this either-or culture. And as we are talking about these issues and our own beliefs or opinions, we need to have the mindset That allows for the possibility that we could be wrong Or that we don't have all the facts That in the book of James He says Let everyone be quick to hear Slow to speak Slow to anger For the anger of man does not produce The righteousness of God And what Jesus provides for us oftentimes Is a stance that's going to be somewhere In the middle of a current event Because he is on his own side And we are called to be with him And so where we can find ourselves causing division in the church is when we start to make secondary and tertiary issues into primary issues. Because when we do that, what we are essentially saying is, if you disagree with me on this issue, then I can no longer be a part of this church. And so you will break relationship and you'll go elsewhere, or you might rally people within the church that think like you do and create factions, which just creates further division in the church. And so that is why Paul is stressing unity and agreement on the primary beliefs of Christianity because we as Christians have an enemy that is prowling about like a lion looking to destroy. That Satan is the one who ultimately opposes us and that he uses any strategy, any person, any means necessary to undermine the unity of the church. But his number one strategy, probably his go-to method, is to exploit our pride. And Paul addresses this, in verses three and four so let's look at that again do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others so in his book mere christianity c.s lewis calls pride or self-conceit the great sin It is the sin from which all other sins come from. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. And he argues that it was pride that caused Satan to rebel against God. And it was also pride that Satan appealed to Adam and Eve to get them to eat from the tree that God had forbidden. Because as they're in the garden, he tells them, you can be like God if you eat this tree. Don't you want real glory? You can have glory like God's if you take this fruit. And so they did. And in pursuit of their own glory, sin entered the world. And now we've been seeking out our own glory ever since. And so we really need to think about and define what the word glory means. Because this is a church word that's used often. And if we aren't careful, we just kind of get numb to it and gloss over it. But in the Bible, the word glory means renown and honor and importance. It means to have meaning and significance. And if you look at the word that Paul uses for conceit in verse 3, it's the Greek word kinodoxion, and it's literally translated into glory vacuum or glory hunger. And so when we talk about pride as being a sin, we're meaning this desire to be glorified, that we are hungry for our own glory, that we want to be significant. We want to be important and to matter. So why do you think social media is so popular? It's because they are self-promoting platforms. If you want to get praise for a pretty picture, post it on Instagram. If you want to be seen as clever or funny, tweet. If you want to let it out on Gray County, go to Facebook. (laughs) But social media is where we often try to feed our glory hunger pains. And it's not just that we want glory. But Paul is also saying that we use selfish ambition as a means to get that glory that we place ourselves above everyone else in order to achieve it. And if you really want to know what your ambition is, just fill in the blank. I want to be blank. So what is it for you? I want to be respected. I want to be rich. I want to be right. I want to be loved. I want to be a parent. Maybe I want to be free from parenting. I'm kidding. Clara, happy birthday. (laughs) Whatever it is that you answered, though, that is the tool that you are currently using to try and attain significance and meaning. And that your pride is driving that selfish ambition. But the Bible tells us the issue is that whatever means you try to obtain your own glory with is going to fail. And that's why you see a lot of unhappy wealthy people. They have everything that money can buy. And they are still not satisfied. They are still wanting more. That's because pride can't be satisfied. And pride is such an insidious sin because it manifests itself in so many different ways. So one way pride can look in a person is that you have the person who doesn't care what anybody thinks because I'm right and everybody else is wrong and so you can go eat beans. But then on the other spectrum you've got the person who cares too much about what people think because they think everything is about them. Two totally different outcomes, but the root is the same. And even after you're saved by Christ and you follow him, pride is still there. It just doesn't go away once you're saved. And so back to Philippians, Paul is warning them to fight against pride because it's the very thing that is keeping them from being united as a church. And that should make sense, because if you have a church body full of people who are looking out for their own interests, there's not going to be a unified church. So, what is the remedy for pride? Paul tells them that in humility, to count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is the antithesis to pride. And I like that he added in humility on that sentence because it actually keeps us from being falsely humble because anybody can say Yeah, those people are better than me But paul tells his readers to actually believe that And that he gives us an action that actually accompanies that belief when he says to look not only to your own interest But to the interest of others So another way of saying this is that if you really do count others more significant than yourselves You will look to their interests as well and this is a twofold statement because it addresses not only our need to see ourselves rightly, but also our need to see people as more valuable than we currently do. And this, but the problem here is that this can only be done by being humble. So, how do we become humble? The answer is found in the gospel. Paul writes in verses 5 through 8 that Jesus humbled himself and became man and died for us. And that while we are in a complete anti-God state of mind and seeking our own glory, not only does he rescue us, but he then turns around and gives us his glory. In the high priestly prayer in the book of John, Jesus says in chapter 17, verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. We see that Jesus has given us His glory, His significance, His importance, and He freely gives it to us. He poured Himself out for us so that we can be filled. So, do you see how to be humble now? We can be humble because the glory that we've been seeking for our whole life is given to us by Jesus. We don't need to hunger for glory anymore because He gives us His. That we can count others as more significance more significant than ourselves because he gives us significance that we don't have to elevate ourselves above anybody anymore because jesus lifts us up and that what adam tried to do in the garden has not only been reversed but it's been made right not only that but jesus gives us the perfect example of humility in himself since we are called to be like jesus this is an aspect of him that we are to emulate and it's only by his grace that we can do that So, what does humility look like for us today? It means that you don't have to win every argument. That we can listen to people who have different viewpoints than us, and we don't have to prove how we're right and they're wrong. That we can take criticism from others without feeling like we're being attacked. That we don't have to get angry when someone slights us, because we are free from having to prove ourselves anymore. And so... If we work backwards from the text, we see that Jesus poured out his life on our behalf so that we can share in his glory and be saved from our sin. And we not only look to him as an example of humility, but we look to him because we experience his humility. And therefore, we humble ourselves like he did, which then leads us to seek out unity within the church. And because we are united in our church, we can stand firm together Striving to make much of Jesus and to make him known in our communities, unwavering and unafraid. That is living the life that we are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel and it is all rooted in Jesus. So this morning, if you are hearing this as a follower of Christ and you're struggling in an area of pride and it's affecting your relationships, then repent of that and seek out Christ's humility. But if you're here this morning and you've realized that you aren't really following Christ, that you are just trying to find your own meaning in this life, know that He is offering you His glory and He is offering you meaning and significance that will satisfy and not go away. So let us respond this morning. Father, we thank you for your Son, that you gave Him freely, and that He has brought not only us from our our sin and from death to life, but that he has given us his glory. So, Father, I ask that your spirit will move through us, that our hearts will be softened, and that we will receive this word with joy. Thank you for your son. Thank you for how much you love us. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen.